Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Cindy, welcome to the show. Great to have you here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So there's many places we can start, but because you have quite an interesting background between academia, consulting, working with large businesses and so on, for the sake of our audience, talk us through briefly your background. So my background, I did start in academia. I was a college professor of communication. So I taught things like public speaking, articulation, and then went into consulting as many professors do, started doing that in the summers, went into consulting full-time and In my first consulting position, about six months in, I was put into a sales role and I thought, I'm going to get fired. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a salesperson. I'm an academic. I can't do this. And my boss at the time literally said, if you learn to sell, it'll change your life. And my 20 something year old self rolled my eyes and said, silly. Yes. And he was right. Uh, It did. And I got more and more into sales and realized that sales was just a way to help people. And that led me to write the first book and now the second book because it's a skill that I think everybody needs. It's, you know, sales isn't just a business skill, it's a life skill. And so that's become my focus is helping people to, to learn sales. There's an interesting juxtaposition here. You're a professor of communication. If there's anyone who could find it easy to sell, it would be you. <laughs> so when you were given this task, why didn't you see your background as giving you some advantage versus sort of the average person? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's because of the same reason that most people shy away from sales, because we think it's icky. It's this pushy, manipulative, we have this avatar in our mind of that, you know, really transactional, one-sided sale, when in fact, sales is very, very little of that. It's, It's much more consultative, much more investigative. And that was my interpretation of sales. And I thought, I'm never going to be able to do that. I'm not slick and fast talking and I'm not pushy. So clearly I can't sell, but it turns out sales is just understanding what others need and trying to deliver on those needs. And that's communication that I can do. (laughs) (laughs) So let's just get back to the reputation of sales. And it's true because I used to be a senior partner in one of the big consulting firms and we never used the word sales. (laughs) Right. <laughs> yeah. We were we were just forbidden from talking about marketing. We would never even use the word we sold an engagement to a client. Right. This is just so negative. And the reason it's negative, and let's see if you agree with me, is because oftentimes we're not exposed to sales, we're exposed to bad salespeople. And they create this horrible image in my head. I mean, I still I remember trying to buy a car and I'm thinking to myself, if I walk in, I'm gonna be attacked. Right. Someone's going to hunt me down. He's going to be pushing me around. So so let's start from the basics, which is what is sales? If we had to redefine it in the correct way, how would we define it? So I really do believe that sales is delivering on a need if and only if you have a solution. So, you know, in consulting world, you and I are both, you know, in that and when you were in there. It was uncovering the needs of the clients through kind of a diagnostic process and finding out if you have a solution 
And if you did, then seeing the right opportunity to bring that solution to light to be able to help them. So I think if we truly reframe sales, it's about helping somebody get something they need. And it's yes. pushing something on them they don't need, which is the kind of sale that we cringe and brace and think, oof, oof, they're going to attack me. <laughs> yeah. So just to paraphrase this for the audience, I'm saying three parts here. One is find out what they want, go and get it and give it to them. That's absolutely right. So now your work is about how people brand themselves and how they sell themselves. But most people don't even understand they need to be a brand. So you've got to overcome that hurdle first of telling them why they have to brand themselves and then teaching themselves how they have to present themselves or sell themselves. So for people listening to this, what advice would you give them for thinking about how to brand themselves? So the first thing that I would say is you have a brand already, whether yes. you recognize it or not. <laughs> yeah, so, it's, it's usually a mismanaged brand at this point. It, it, that's, that's a great way to put it. And, and it is our responsibility to manage proactively our brands and the impression we're leaving in the world. Because if you're not, you're leaving the impression that you leave on others to others to decide. And, and that's yes. a good, good management of, of your reputation. So the first thing is recognizing you've got one. And then the second thing is recognizing, is it getting you where you want to go? You know, perhaps you're- oh, I like that question. It, you know, that the whole point of having a brand and having a, a powerful personal brand is that's your best sales tool in your sales toolkit. You're truly selling yourself every day to your colleagues, to your friends, to your family. I would argue that every interaction is a bit of a sales transaction. Yes. So you've got this brand and you want to be sure that you're leaving the appropriate impression to help you get where you want to go. So just staying in the consulting space, let's say that you want to move categories of clients. You want to move to a different vertical. You want to move up in terms of, you know, account size, yes. something like that. Why haven't you been chosen? Well, if you really examine your brand, are you selling yourself as someone that can handle that? Or are you letting your work speak for itself because it's not speaking loud enough? Yes. And I think there's also a degree of honesty needed here and people self-evaluate. I really like the question you raised, which is, is your brand taking you where you want it to go? So when I deal with clients, even today, I sometimes deal with partners who are still in firms and they always tell me, Michael, I can't win with this client. This client is not hiring me. And the first question I ask them is, does the client trust you? Because oftentimes, even though we don't want to admit it, we can say whatever we want. It's about pricing and experience, but the client doesn't trust me enough to do what I'm saying. And when you ask people this question about trust, they take it personal, but it's not personal. The client's thinking about it anyway. You should think about it too. So how do you get people to, to start thinking in this way about is their brand trustworthy? Are they trustworthy? So it, it's so funny you say that and, and having that consulting mindset same is no sale is ever going to happen without trust. And I think a lot of people confuse rapport and trust. Yes, good point. You know, I, I can go have a cup of coffee with you. I can have lots of conversations with you about the things you could do to impact my business, but I still won't hire you. Why? Because you haven't created the trust. And so the trust is really you selling yourself because regardless of what you're actually selling, you're selling yourself first. And that's literally why I wrote the second book is because we have to remember we're humans selling to humans, at least right now, <laughs> and yes. there's not a robot deciding. And so if you're truly selling to another human, you've got to be trustworthy before they're going to trust whatever it is you're selling, your product, your service, your 
you know, package of whatever. So if you are creating that trust, the first thing is, how are you packaged? How are you selling your own personal brand? Have you shown yourself as someone to be trustworthy? Have you delivered on the promises that you say that you're going to, even as far as just communicating with this person or potential client? And that's where it starts. And I think that people don't recognize a lot of times that the things you do and the things you don't do are contributing to your personal brand and how powerful it can be. And so even though that's not a client right now, we'll call them, how are you treating them? Are you treating them as if, or are have you put them kind of in this friend zone frustration that, oh, they won't hire me, they won't hire me. And you actually said something that was really interesting. It's like, I can't win this client. It's not really winning, you know, it's yes. finding out if there's that partnership. And I know you agree with that too. So even the way that we're looking at that dynamic, are we looking at it in a way that they should be trusting us that we have their best interest at heart? Or is there some inkling in there that we are selling them on that we just want to get their business? And you've got to look at that with an honest inventory. You said something very insightful. And I want to unpack it for the audience here. You made the point that before someone works with you, they have to first trust you before they trust what it is you're offering. I've seen this many times with clients. They'll come to me and say, hey, Michael, I read this book by Ray Dalio, for example. I'm sure they're going to say that about your book as well. And they have this very interesting framework. I took it to a client, but the client didn't like it. So clearly the framework doesn't work. There's a difference here. It is possible that you have personally misled the client in the past and they don't trust you. And you always got to distinguish between, is the client not working with me because they don't trust me? or they don't trust the concept I'm bringing. And for a lot of people, they forget there's baggage with the client. The clients have heard things about them from other people. And you've got to overcome all of those barriers first before you can put trust in what you're taking to the client. Yep. Not enough people do that. So what would you recommend? How do we get people to start thinking about the baggage they bring, the reputation, the brand? I like the way you say packaging. How do you get people to think about that? So... I would invite the listeners to recognize that your personal brand is your only non-product, non-price differentiator that you have. So it's really comes down to you. And like you said, there's baggage with that. There is a history when you get to this point, ever how brief it may be. Maybe you met this person one time at a conference. Maybe you've had three conversations or maybe you've been dancing around this for three years. There's baggage with that. So the first thing that I would say is take an inventory of what that history is. And recognize where maybe you're not living up to your brand. Like, I really believe there's sort of three ways that we build a personal brand. It's you create the brand, you live it, and then you sell it. Yes. Maybe you're not living it. Maybe you're not every day in and day out, every communication reinforcing that brand. Maybe you have people that are selling against that brand where they're hearing something else from a client or there's a misinterpretation. So your personal brand is what makes you the person of interest. So I'd start there with the inventory of you and your relationship and really see where maybe that has not aligned in, in the relationship so far. Because we've all done this too with clients where it wouldn't matter what you were selling them at the end of the day, they trust you. So they're going to hear you out. If this person isn't willing to hear you out, the issue is you then. Yes. <laughs> so indicator and oftentimes they're willing to hear you out because they're hoping maybe something has changed 
But then if nothing has changed, then it goes back to the drawing board. You did say something that is true, and I like it in the sense that you can have a brand, but if you operate cross-purposes to your brand at times, you have this lack of authenticity. And that's very common, whereby you see, especially executives, they will espouse certain values, but their actions go cross-purposes. And then they wonder why they're not able to motivate a sales force, why they're not able to motivate people and so on. So as people build a brand, what other things they should think about? So what would be the, the building blocks of a brand? So the first thing, it's funny that you mentioned values because I think it starts there. I actually do believe it's your core values of yourself, not just your company and hopefully yes. they with your own core values, but just for you, like some of my core values are honesty and ethical. And, yes. you know, if your baby's ugly, I'm going to tell you if you ask, <laughs> that's just who I am. And so I'll be honest. Unsolicited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. It'd have to be solicited. But, but, but as a consultant, that is part of my brand is that. I'm going to tell you what's wrong if you actually ask for it, because I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. I'm going to tell you how to fix it, but I'm going to be honest with you about it. And I'm also going to be honest with you if I'm not a fit for you and I'm going to try to get you a solution. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. I'm absolutely okay walking away. But that's one of my core values is that ethical piece. So I think it begins there. And for leaders in particular, this is really, really important. And I love that you brought up sort of the leaders piece because Oftentimes leaders are selling against their own brand and they don't even realize it because yes. they're espousing the core values of the company. Maybe yours is slightly different and you haven't rectified the two. So you're talking the talk, but you're not walking it. And that's basically a split personality brand and it's confusing to your team. And, and I see this a lot with our clients too, where a leader will say, oh, well, my team needs to learn to sell. Oh, but I don't sell. You got to be kidding me. That's your whole job. <laughs> yes. So you have to start with, is it central to your core of your brand that you are going to walk the talk? If that is the case, then you have to sell as well. And that's just an example. But starting with that creation of the brand and another piece of the building blocks there is the intention behind it. Where do you want this yes. brand to go? And, you know, I, I've read a, a gazillion books on marketing and personal branding, and they are fantastic, but they're building a brand for marketing. What I want people to do is build a brand for selling because yes. you're selling yourself. So much like a sales plan, you have a brand plan. Where do you want this to go? What is your intention? How do you want this to impact the world? And so then you start looking for the words you want others to describe you as, the narrative that you want out in the market about you or in your teams or with your colleagues. And then, this is the hardest part, you seek feedback. Yes. Start asking people, you know, if, if you have the resting witch face, then <laughs> you have it because you need to know this. So you've got to get that mirror and get the information back. Otherwise, you're selling the wrong thing. And so those are the first fundamental building blocks of it is that intention, that plan, the values, and then the feedback. And then you start building from there. I like that because my experience is that people stumble into a brand for themselves. There's no plan. They've never thought about it strategically. They just took a few roles because it looked interesting. They've maybe then worked on building financial models for the last five years, and they've made that their brand. They've never asked the question is, where do I want to go? Is this going to get me there? What does my brand stand for? Is it aligned with my values? Is it sustainable? I think that's the most common thing I've seen with executives. They have never had someone 
work with them from a PR perspective as well as a sounding board saying that this is the brand that's best for your career and what is needed in your company. But it's probably the most important thing. Why do you think that's missing so much in leadership today? Well, I think part of it is the sales part. It's we throw the word sell yourself. I mean, this is why I named the book this, but like sell yourself. We throw that around. The operative word is sell. <laughs> you're selling something all day, every day. And it's yes. it's what you're bringing to the world. And so I think that that's part of the, the ickiness that we have to get over as leaders is recognizing our whole job is to sell as leadership. And whether you're external leadership as a consultant and leading a change or your internal leadership leading the team, you're still leading. And leadership is 100% sales because you're impacting the actions of other humans. If you are impacting the actions of other humans, that is a sale. (laughs) Yeah, because if you think about it, the role of a leader is to convince someone to do work for them. I mean, that's pretty much what a leader is doing, right? If a CEO is doing the work, there's a problem with that CEO because they're getting involved in the details. So the job of a CEO is every single day to convince someone to do something for them convince the board that what they convinced the someone to do something for them makes sense and then convince the investor community that they're doing all the right things. So I do want to switch gears here a little bit. So this is something I've noticed consistent throughout my career. Whenever I talk to people about how to communicate, for example, how to sell themselves, they always focus on their professional lives. And they completely neglect their personal lives. For example, when someone comes to me and says, Michael, I want to learn how to communicate effectively, you know, have gravitas, rivet the attention of the of the audience. I'm thinking to myself, so this means you can do it in your personal life. You just can't bring it into your professional life or you have a deficit in both places. So why is it that people don't think about having these skills in their personal lives? So it's so funny that you bring that up. And, and you said a really important word a second ago that I just want to underscore convincing. Convincing is a synonym for sales. Yes. (laughs) So what I would do if I were coaching that individual is I would have them recognize where they're successfully convincing in one side of their life and how they can bring that same skill set into their personal or professional life, whichever one we're working on. Yes. And I agree with you. They kind of couch themselves in the professional role. And I think we, you know, a lot of us identify with our jobs. We identify that as, as part of our true identity. But it's recognizing that you're quite successful doing some of these skill sets in other parts of your life, delegating to your kids or family members, um, convincing your partner to go for, you know, this kind of food instead of that kind of food. So doing all of these, it's recognizing it's the same skill set to bring into the role. But there is the level of, of sort of imposter syndrome that comes up for most people when they're really changing their behavior and bringing and broadening their personal brand and bringing more of their whole self to work. Yes. A little bit like an imposter because they go, well, that's not really me. I would argue that it is you, but maybe you haven't brought that facet of your brand to work. And so part of this is recognizing that anytime you feel imposter syndrome, in my opinion, that's a really good indicator that you're growing. That's, that's a good governor where you go, okay, I'm feeling this. Let me take some inventory all right, this is new. This is the edge of my comfort zone. I'm growing. So if you're pulling some of those skill sets that you have from your personal life, and let's just say it is a sales skill set, you're convincing over here, well, you're going to convince your team over here. What is it that's so afraid? It's so scary for you. What are you afraid of? 
And nine times out of 10, it's the fear that people are going to think they're a fake or that they can't do it. So again, imposter syndrome. But there's one thing that can help people, which is they have to give themselves permission to grow. Yes. And I find leaders really struggle with this because there's this thing in our heads where we're like, I'm supposed to have all the answers. Absolutely not. You're supposed to find the answers. And as you find answers and you show that to your team and show them that you are growing as you're leading, I think that level of transparency and vulnerability does nothing but build more trust with your team. Yes, it does. I agree with that. You pointed out some important things here. The imposter syndrome thing is actually a very good test to know if you're out of your comfort zone and growing. Because if you don't feel it, that means you're doing what you're capable of doing. So you're never really growing. Then you talked about permission. I think that's an important one. Because a lot of people, when I speak to them, when I coach them, they often don't feel they have permission to do something. The most common thing I hear, because we deal with people who go to Harvard, Stanford quite a lot, is someone doesn't get into Wharton, Harvard, or Stanford, and they tell me, well, I don't deserve to speak up. I was dealing with a doctor once who, he developed a technique whereby they could treat more patients more cheaply. And for one year, he never said anything. And I framed it to him and said that, do you realize by not speaking up, people are going to die? Is that what you want? And then when he saw it from that perspective, he spoke up. But what I'm trying to get is how do people develop their own catalyst to move them forward? So that goes back to the plan and getting clear on where you want to go. So if that person, if that doctor had developed this and his or her goal was to impact patient safety and lives and save lives, then the mission has to be greater than the fear. I like that. The why needs to be strong. Absolutely. It has to be strong. And you have to give yourself permission to say, okay, I'm willing to be uncomfortable here because the impact is going to be larger. And don't, then who are you helping? Who are you saving? Who are you impacting? And, And we have these multiple facets to our brands and I call them your superpowers. And part of the challenge with most people is they don't give themselves permission to articulate their superpowers. And they just expect everybody to go, Oh, have you invented anything amazing today? That's (laughs) That's true. No, like no one's going to ask you that question. So you have to be brave enough to speak up. And that's why, you know, in this book, I I talk about it being your most powerful personal brand. Because if you can speak up and you create advocates out there who can speak up with you and for you, you're able to have a greater reach and a greater impact in the world. And if you're listening to this podcast right now, you're trying to do that (laughs) in some capacity. You're already doing that and you're investing yourself in yourself because you're listening to this. So if that's part of your goal and the only thing standing in your way is you giving yourself permission to go for it, then I'm going to wave my magic wand right now and say, you got it, go. (laughs) I like what you're saying because what you're talking about is having agency over your ability to speak. Because I do hear this often from people that they're upset or they feel the company is not inclusive because the manager didn't take the time to ask them what they thought. But you've got to imagine what a manager is going through. They're not perfect, right? (laughs) They've got a million things happening. If there's a meeting with 12 people, do you know how long it's going to take to go to each person and say, I know I may have overlooked you. Is there something important you need to tell me? It would be quite a ridiculous conversation. Of course, a manager has to create an environment where people can speak up. But to some degree, I think that people maybe 
use it as an excuse. I agree with you. And there's something that kind of happens in their minds. And this is what I hear in my coaching. And I'm sure you do too, which is they say, well, you know, it can't be all about me. You know, that's super narcissistic. If I speak up, I actually think it's more narcissistic. If you think that manager is thinking about nothing. (laughs) So, so, uh, you know, it's sort of like, okay, you want to go there, but, but truly giving yourself permission to speak up so that you can create that impact. And I agree with you that the leaders are the ones that create the environment and the culture for people to feel free and speak up around this, but it is still up to the individual contributor to be the one to, to raise your hand. And I think we've kind of changed in industries and in the world, quite frankly, you know, multiple cultures, the world is much smaller than it used to be. Honestly, we're quite interconnected. And so, you know, depending on where you are, and where you're working and what that culture is, you know, your work culture, there is an expectation to speak up or there is an expectation that you will be called on. So I would invite leaders to look at what legacy you're leaving. Are you creating a culture where people are willing to bring their individual superpowers to the table as crazy and ridiculous as the idea may be, but you can look at it and go, well, how fascinating was that? That's not gonna work, but we're gonna listen to it anyways. I like that. In fact, I remember once we did a study many years ago for a client to find out why catastrophes happened. Like, why did the dam break and so on? And we studied 10 major disasters, spoke to the CEO, spoke to everyone. And what we learned is that it wasn't a surprise there was a problem. A lot of people knew about it, but enough people were scared to bring it forward. So I'm thinking to myself, it, all of those things happen because someone is too scared to push a point, right? It's how people get caught into this trap. So, so let's switch gears a little bit here. The way I've seen sales conducted incorrectly, and there's many examples of this, it's almost as if the salesperson is trying to pull a fast one on you. In the sense that there's an asymmetry of information. Both sides are not telling each other exactly what they want. And they're almost expecting to come up with a perfect answer with imperfect information. So why do you think when people are selling themselves, selling their brands, trying to influence, trying to convince, oftentimes they feel there has to be a manipulation factor in there? I think that goes back to that fear of of the icky factor of just in general that we feel. And then there's a little bit of imposter syndrome. I, I think there's sort of those contributing factors. But I think the biggest piece is, if you don't have a good game plan for why this person needs whatever it is you're selling them, and if you're convincing them that it's you that they yes. need your team or they need you know your expertise, you have to believe in it. And it's funny because people will say, "Oh, well, you know, you could go sell this or you could go sell that." Yeah, maybe, but I, I truly have to believe in what I'm selling or I won't be able to sell it. That's part of my like ethical moral compass. So the first thing I would ask that person is, "Do you actually believe that this is the right solution?" And if you do, then figure out how it helps the person and put it put it in their world versus it being about you. Because when a yes. about you as the salesperson, that's not a sale. That's manipulation, in my opinion. When the sale is about the other person and figuring out what they need and what the impact can be for them, that's a real sale. You said something interesting, which I haven't seen before. You, you said that if you believe in what you are selling, then it's authentic because I've not seen that angle taken before. And that obviously makes sense. So you believe in it. You truly believe it's the best solution. And then you decide 
to how do you communicate the value it's going to bring to someone? Because at the moment, sales seems to be compensating for not believing in something where but you got to incentivize people with crazy metrics and rewards and so on. Versus if you brought in people who believed in what they were doing, sales should be more authentic and organic. There was a, a company that we helped through a rebrand, an actual rebrand naming of the company. And we did a, a whole thing where we were helping them each to understand their personal brand because the company understood that if everybody believed in themselves, believed that they made an impact on the customer and believed in what they were selling, the company would be stronger for it. And it's yes. 17 employees internationally. I mean, that's kind of an amazing thing that they literally invested in every single employee to do this. So that's the question is, the company that you're working with or the company that you're working for, how much do you actually believe in it? And is that aligned with you? You know, we went through this whole thing in the last couple of years as a global community. Yeah resignation. And then there was a great remorse and the regret. And then there was a great reset. I truly believe what's next is the great rebrand. And it's looking at how the world has changed and how your story is impacting that or not. And if you can't believe in what you're doing, or you don't believe in what you're selling, that's going to impact you long-term. And it's going to lead to job dissatisfaction, honestly. Like you you want to be happy at work. You want to be happy in what you're doing. So I would encourage everybody to take that honest inventory in this moment and say, I really do believe in this. And I do believe it's going to be the right thing for our clients. And then that makes you excited to go to work in the morning too. It's just more fun. <laughs> yes. And it's also cuts to the core of how high-performing teams work. The team that truly believes in what they're fighting for will almost always overcome a superior opposition. Yeah. I mean, we've seen that throughout history. We've seen that in sports. We've seen that in business. We've seen that in warfare and so on. This belief system, the strong why, the way you frame it, and I like it, it's not as if sales is separate from leadership. What you're saying is that a good leader must be able to sell something, and basically it's what their brand is or convince people to follow them because of their brand. That's a sustainable definition of sales to me because it's not something I've got to say, okay, today we're going to talk about leadership, but on Friday we're going to talk about sales right. because then it doesn't become sustainable. Yeah. So let's think about it this way, right? Because if what we're saying is true, which it is, why do people join companies that they don't want to sell? I mean, if you work at a place that you categorically dislike and you don't believe in their philosophy, it would make sense you're not going to be successful there because you don't want more people to sign up. You don't believe in it, right? So it's about finding that good or perfect fit between what you believe in and where or how you're going to work. Is that a good way of saying it? Absolutely. And I think that is a bit of what people realized over the last few years in, in the world was, you know, it reevaluation of, is this where I belong? Is this the place that I want to be in the world? And is this the impact that I want to make? And I don't think it's sustainable if, if it's not something you believe in, because it's not going to feed you as a human being. Now, some people can absolutely categorize it and they say, this is my nine to five. This is my job. I don't yeah. care. I do it. And I go home and that's fine. And that's part of their personal brand, but in a sales capacity, we have to recognize that you're selling 24 seven, whether you recognize it or not. And so if you're selling it during nine to five, and then on the weekend, you're not selling it or actually selling against it, eventually that will catch up with you because you're selling a split personality brand. 
And it's building distrust, whether you recognize it today or not, and it will catch up with you eventually. And so being mindful of that. Yes, yeah, so I've seen this with many people where they'll tell me something like, this is their job, but uh, they do this nonprofit work on a weekend because it gives them a sense of purpose. I'm thinking to myself, why don't you get a job that gives you a sense of purpose? Because what you're saying here is that the part you really believe in, when you put your greatest effort in, you're going to do it on a weekend for the least amount of time when you're tired. But the part that you don't believe in, where you can't see a future for yourself, and you know that's the law of self-fulfilling prophecy, you're putting your best hours in it. And I think there's also the element there of the imposter syndrome, whereby people think that this is normal to have this also a hybrid model in life, whereby they live in a life that earns them money, but is not their sense of purpose. But they don't believe they deserve a life of purpose. I've seen that a lot with senior leaders as well, yes. whereby they create a trap for themselves, whereby they believe this life is normal. Have you seen that as well? A hundred percent that they get on the treadmill and they can't get off. And then you wake up 25 years later and here you are. And and I've written blogs about it. I've written articles about it where it's like you wake up and you go, whose life is this? And yes, yes. it's a full life, but it's an unfulfilled life. And I do think that's why we start looking for those things on, on the weekends and in the evenings that will sort of feed our soul. But I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive. I think we can find ways to, to impact that during the day. Like, for example, if you are a leader who just loves helping people and that's what you're doing on the weekend or that's what you're doing in the evenings, mentor someone in your organization, you know, on your own time, yes. paid for it, find a way to create an impact there as well. And, and I believe that we, again, are very multifaceted and we have all these different interests. So you may still want and need that thing outside. You know, if you're wanting to work with animals, probably not going to be working with animals during the day in a capacity. Yes. So go find that. But it is finding ways to bring your whole self to work. And that's my goal is I want people to recognize that you can bring your whole self to work. You can live your most authentic self. And you're selling that every day anyways. So you might as well do it on purpose. <laughs> yes, that makes sense. But there's also an element here of growth that people I think tend to miss when they think about creating a brand. I remember working with a client over many years, I think it was 12 years, and we branded him as a digital expert. And he worked for a huge insurance company. So every time they had a problem with digital, they'd send him all over the world. And he was the digital guy. And he had become very successful. He had helped the company compete against their biggest competitors by moving them digital. But what had happened is that when the time came for selecting a CEO, the company decided they didn't need a digital person. They needed an M&A person. And I remember talking to this guy and telling him, your brand hasn't failed you. You've just outgrown your company. Because he was saying, well, I've got to rebrand myself. I'm saying, you got to ask yourself, you're a 55-year-old. It's pretty hard to rebrand yourself because there's nothing wrong with your brand. It's not that your brand is broken. The role is no longer there. And he eventually moved to another company where he became chief operating officer, moved up and so on. I think people always forget that as your brand becomes stronger and stronger, you've got to find a home for it. It doesn't always come to you, right? Yeah. And it, and it is about being proactive and how you start to sell yourself. And I do think that you can rebrand at work. I think a lot of people are doing yeah. that now. But you also have to recognize when it's time for a, a full pivot. And that was good yes. to person because that was not just a rebrand. That was a career pivot. And 
you you outgrow the flower pot, you know, <laughs> it happens, but give yes. him permission to move on. And that's what you helped him to do was give himself the permission to take that step into his new full self and full powerful brand. So how would someone know they have a healthy brand? So the way that I think that you can know if your brand is serving you is if you are on track of getting what you want, truly. Like, are you getting the promotions you want? Are you getting the clients that you want? Are you making the impact that you want? If you are, you're on brand. If there are segments of that, like most human beings, where you're not necessarily firing on all cylinders, those are that we have to look at. Those are the areas where maybe the brand is either not as strong or you have things selling against you or, you know, it's just the narratives in the market. And I'll give you a perfect example, even with us. So we're a consulting firm. There's lots of consultants that are listening to this, but because we do workshops, people will call us a training company and I will correct that. We are not a company. We are a consulting company. So even the vernacular that you use- is very important. It is. And you have to control the narrative of what you said out there. And so, like you said, you know, at the beginning, you didn't even call it sales. We don't either. We call it a partnership agreement. We don't call it a contract. We don't say we closed a sale. We said we began the relationship. So it's even the vernacular changes the narrative. And I think it is up to each individual to fiercely protect your brand, defend your brand and control the narrative. And especially if you are feeling like there are some of those tiny segments of your life that are not necessarily where you want them to be. That's, those are the ones to look at. And there's always room for improvement. This is an important point because it's about having the conversation you want to have with the client and the colors of the conversation are defined by the language you use. And I'd take this even further. You want to have a language with a client that no one else can have. She's the only one having this conversation because I remember when I was a partner and everyone would go to their clients and say, there's market entry work you can do whereby you can enter other markets. And we've reframed it to say that you don't want to enter another market. You want to find a way to take the profits out of that market with the least amount of effort. And then we'd be the only one having that conversation with the client. Nobody else can have the conversation. The client cannot compare us. So this idea of language is very important because it's about the conversation. And what happens with many people, again, it comes back to what you raised earlier, the imposter syndrome. When they're not sure what to say, they look at what best practices are, and then they just copy it. And you always see these trends showing up whereby someone talks about something and everyone's doing it, and everyone looks the same. And then you don't want to have that conversation because who are you talking to? You've seen this a lot with accounting firms, law firms. They all tell you they're different, but they're comparable. It's funny that you say that because we've done this exercise with clients. We'll pull pieces from their own website and pull pieces from their competitors' website. Yeah, it sounds the same. And then show them and say, which ones are yours? And they always get it wrong. And I'm like, they're all saying the same thing. Like, I hate the term customer service. I really do. Yeah. I don't think it means anything. So stop saying you give great service. Nobody cares. That's the expectation. So if you're telling that story as a, as a, a firm or as a law firm or as an insurance company or whatever, that, that's a terrible story to tell. Talk about the impact that you're making. Talk about the fact that you take care of the clients, make sure they have an amazing experience so they want to go tell their friends. Like That's more compelling. And where I think people forget in this branding phase and also just sort of this you know, languaging around yeah. customers, if I don't have a story to tell about you, 
then I don't have anything to say. <laughs> that is true. And I think it's a very simple but powerful technique. And it's often underlooked because I remember once we were dealing with a um, the very successful CEO. He left and he, he set up a food bank. And he would offer soup to people and so on. And I remember speaking to him once and he was so happy to me. He saying, Michael, we're expanding from five food banks to 20. But for me, there was a problem here. If your number of food banks are expanding, you haven't solved the underlying problem. You shouldn't be proud of that, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so now speaking to him, the language he was using of growth being a good thing kept him focused in the wrong areas. And he, he could never understand why he couldn't raise enough fundraising. and said, you're focusing on the wrong thing. Yeah. Get companies to fund you to fix the underlying problem so you don't have food banks in the first place. Yeah. So it's just the language, simple things. And people forget language is so important. Just a, a tiny little difference can make all of the impact. So... Let's switch gears. I do want to talk about one thing here that I've saw in your book. I've very rarely seen people practice gratitude as a strategic weapon. It's usually fake, to be honest. It's usually done because someone told them to do it. And what almost always happens is they'll end off the sales process very well, but there's no follow through after that. And you get the sense of insincerity that, wow, had this great conversation, this person promised to follow up, and then it's all gone. So how do you practice gratitude as something sustainable? So this is one of my favorite subjects because I think it's a lost thing. Um, and it is part of my brand is gratitude. I, I And it's even in the language that I use. I don't say I have to go to work. I say I get to go to work. I don't mm-hmm. have to go on a plane. I get to get on a plane and go see clients. So that's important. It's the way that I look at it. But I think that if you start from that place of gratitude and abundance, it changes the sale. You're not coming from a place of desperation. You're not coming from a place of scarcity. You're coming from a place of, I get to help these people. And this is amazing. And the follow-up and follow-through, I 100% agree with you, is the part where people fall down. And even when the answer was no in a sale. Yeah. Thanking them for the no. I think no is a perfectly acceptable response. And I actually wish people would yes. answer <laughs> because I don't want it to waste time, you know? So no is a gift because then you get an opportunity to have a conversation on why it's no, thank them for that feedback. And then you get to learn and grow from that. But that follow through and gratitude as a sustainable practice is probably the hardest step of a sales process. And it's actually step five of the sales process that I teach because if you're not following up and following through and showing gratitude, nobody wants to help you again. Yes. And I believe that nobody does this life alone. I wouldn't be able to impact the people that I'm able to impact and my company is able to impact if people weren't talking about it, if clients weren't sharing the stories, if they weren't willing to be a reference. That's amazing. And I have people, literally a client just came to mind. I haven't worked with him in 15 years and he's still one of my favorite references because he shows what we do as a consulting firm. We fix it and we don't go back. Yes. <laughs> so I am grateful I like for that. You know, I and that and that's a great story, but it's it's one of those things where people get wrapped up in whatever's next. People get wrapped in whatever is going to be the growth piece, where we're going to go next, having 20 food banks instead of five, versus stopping and taking that in of what you've already done and who's helped you and what the impact is that collectively you've made. And it is a practice of mine. It's, I start, I mean, literally my coffee cup says gratitude on morning, but it's a choice. 
And that's what I would encourage people to recognize is you absolutely have a choice every single day when you get up before your feet hit the ground. Are you going to look at this day as possibility or obstacle? Are you going to look at this day with gratitude or with scarcity? Are you going to look at this day with looking for opportunities to connect more? Or are you going to look at this day as people should be connecting with me? And I believe that our job as humans is to be the flower you know, to, to not be the flower, but be the bee. We've got to be yes. buzzing. But so many people think, well, they know where I am. They know I'm here if they need me. No, 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 no. You have to be proactive about staying in touch. You have to be the one that is continuing to communicate and proactively communicate. And I, I will honestly tell you, I do believe that is the thing that has been contributing to the opportunity that we've had as an organization to continue to impact companies is our ability to keep in touch with people and genuine interest in how they're doing and genuine interest in what they're doing next and gratitude that we were a small part of their journey. I like that. Many good points. A couple of things. Firstly, it's about the state you bring to things. You can decide what kind of uh, emotion you want to attach to things. One of the problems I've seen, I'm sure you've seen this as well, is that people take things personally. If they decline, they never want to follow up. They say, no, this person wasted my time. They don't like me. But here's the thing. Clients want to find the easiest solution that adds the most value to their life. If you gave that to them, they'd sign up immediately. So there's a couple of problems here. Either you're not adding the most value to their life or you cannot communicate it or there's a trust issue. So, but I've seen this so many times that people get upset when someone doesn't buy. They'll say things like, this client doesn't respect me. They wasted my time. But it's not true, right? At the end of the day, it's not personal. You've got to leave the personal stuff aside and realize that. And I've always told this when I was a senior partner, I told junior partners, you know you have a great relationship with a client, not when they're always buying from you, but when you're still talking to them when they're not buying from you. That's right. Because that's what you need. You need to be talking to them all the time because they're going to tell you something useful that you can take to another client. You need to be kept aware of what's happening in the industry. But if you don't want to see a client because they haven't bought from you, that's the wrong attitude because it's it's a long-term relationship. And we have to remember that everyone we worked with or working with is a walking commercial for you. Yes. And it's our job to control the narrative of our own brand. So I need to be checking in with those people and find out what they're saying because if they're still giving information from 15 years ago, Maybe that's not the information I want out there. Maybe it is. Yes. Truly helping to control that narrative. But you said something really important in there too around people are not recognizing that the no is a perfectly acceptable response. And people also have to recognize that there's a lot of things that have to align for a sale to occur. Yes. Not just about you. Maybe there's other things. Maybe they're going through a merger. Maybe there's an acquisition. Maybe they're going to have to do layoffs. Like it's not about us. But I do think that if you are feeling that it is personally impacting you and that this is impacting the relationship, have the conversation, take it off the table. You know, hey, you know what, Michael, I know we're not going to be working together right now. Totally get it. I want some feedback on our conversation that we just had, though. Tell me what I could have done differently. I really respect your opinion. Making sure you're unpacking that with gratitude, following up with gratitude, because you're going to learn from that. And the other thing that I, I encourage salespeople to remember is if you have a really good relationship with somebody, sometimes they don't say no fast enough because you're hard to say no to. Yes, that is true. 
And, and that's hard. And, and I've had to have that conversation where somebody sent me on what I would, you know, we'd call a wild goose chase. Yeah. And it's because they didn't know they could say no. And so I've had to circle back and say, hey, just so you know, no is okay. I'm yes. good, totally good with it. Happy to have had 10 conversations with you. But in the future, because I respect your time and I know you respect mine, let's get to know faster if the answer is no. And I'm totally great with that. And you've got to explore that as well as you've done. I remember many years ago, we were trying to do some important work for a major petrochemicals company. And they went with a rival firm. What we did after being upset a little bit and probably had too much alcohol, we invited the business unit leader. I can't remember if it was the CEO of the business unit leader. I think it may have been the CEO to come and talk to the partners to explain why they didn't hire us. That had to be the most painful talk of my life because he was so brutal about why they went with the other firm. They were so explicit. Boom, 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 boom. Five reasons. They were better than you on all five. We never worked with that client, but we realized what we had to do at other clients if we were going to be better. It was so painful because a lot of the things we think we're good at, we're so smart at it. The client was completely unimpressed. It was also little things. He pointed out that one of the biggest problems is they're trying to conserve the carbon footprint. And he didn't like the fact that there were so many flights involved in the sales process. It's just bad optics. If it ever comes out into the press that they hired these consultants jetting off all over the world during the sales process and so on. He just felt that we needed to be more careful in expenses. That's a terrible thing to hear. <laughs> it really was painful. But here's the thing. you got to take pain if you want to get better, right? And, and I have to commend the fact that you guys did that because that's an amazing follow-up. And that guy and that entire team was going to go tell that story. And that story, you change the narrative simply by inviting them to a conversation. Their narrative could have been, this consulting company was tone deaf because they were talking about carbon footprint and they were flying all over the place and didn't even like read into that. Now his narrative is this company cared so much about what was truly important to us that even when they didn't win the business, they asked us for feedback so that they could learn from it and use that going forward. That's a totally different narrative now. And the same thing happens with your personal brand. If you're not getting where you want to go, if you're not landing the clients you want to or getting the COIs or whatever it is, Get that feedback because that narrative is happening, whether you realize it or not. And I think it's really important to to get that information so that you can tweak your brand, tweak your sales process, whatever it is you need to be able to impact more people. Yeah, too often we want to hear what we're doing right to keep doing what we're doing right. But oftentimes we're not doing enough of the right things. Yeah. And it's a major balance that you need to have. Cindy, I actually enjoyed that podcast so much you have a very very unique way of thinking about sales i will tell you that i've not seen this before thank you that means a lot to me i really appreciate it. this was really fun <laughs> yeah i enjoyed it as well you have a very oftentimes when you know you've got a phd whenever you're introduced to a new concept you have to see how it fits in to existing concepts that have been proven And if your concept fits into what's been proven, then your concept makes sense. But if it doesn't fit into what's been proven, then we've got a problem. You're either going to win a Nobel Prize for discovering something new (laughs) and everyone else is going to hate you. So when I was thinking about this, I was thinking to myself, okay, how does this fit in the principles of leadership? 
And to me, it's a very natural fit. It's almost leadership just positioned in a different way. So I enjoyed it. I think the audience will like it. And hopefully they will get a copy of your book. I think it'll be worth reading for them. I appreciate it so much. Thank you for the opportunity. And it's funny, the epilogue is called Leadership Legacy. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's good. <laughs> it's a good follow-up. Yeah, because I really do want people to recognize this. And and so much of the coaching and consulting that we do, and it sounds like same with your consulting you know, career, it's helping them to recognize they're selling the wrong thing as leaders. And I really do hope that this podcast and the book helps them. So thank you for helping me to get the word out. Yeah, I think the biggest thing I've seen with senior people is that when they're young, they have a blueprint for how to be successful. Right. You got to go do your undergraduate, do your MBA, work at some firm, pick up some skills. But when you get to around 35 and 40, I'm not saying sales and leadership are not necessary earlier, but when you get to 35 and 40 and all you're doing is getting other people to work for you, you either get it that you need the skill or you will never get it and you'll be working for someone else who knows how to lead you. And it's a very scary thing. The other thing I always point out to clients, and I, I'm very careful about this point because it's personal, is I always tell them, if you don't learn how to sell, communicate, and influence in your personal life, you do realize that divorce means 50% of your wealth disappears. Right. Yeah. So I always try to point this out to clients <laughs> because they always tell me things like, Michael, how do you guys invest? Because they know we're very good at investing. And I always say, look, the most important piece of advice I'm going to give you is protect the downside, which means that if you don't invest in your personal life, doesn't matter how successful you are, everything is going to collapse at some point. Right. And most people don't get it, but some really understand that as they get to 40s and 50s and so on. And I always tell people, don't just focus about sales, communication in your professional life. You have to do the same things in your personal life. You have to make family members want to do things for you. You can't just, you know, give them a command. It's never going to work <laughs> or it works up to a certain point, right? It's so funny you say that though, because when I'm coaching people, I call those late in life lessons. I'm yeah. like, well, it's a late in life lesson. Don't you wish you had known that earlier? And it is, it's not something that we're ever really taught. And if we're lucky enough to have a mentor that we learned from or a manager or a leader that we saw do that, and, and they straddled that personal professional fence really well, it's amazing. But many people don't. And, and. I mean, again, that's why people like you and me have jobs, right? <laughs> so yeah. And to, there's another funny help. story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when I get my cars washed, I always get the neighbor's kids to do it because I like to keep the money in the neighborhood. Yeah. So I, the guy came in, very, very uh, professional, 12-year-old, and he was washing the car. And I gave him the money at the end, and I gave him a tip. And I said, you know, what would you do with the tip? And he said, well, I'm going to buy that. I said, the most important thing you need to do is I noticed your mom drove you here. Right? It's not her job. Make sure that you express your gratitude for her doing that on a weekend. Yeah. So you got to teach these things at a young age. Yeah. That's an amazing lesson that you taught that young man. Let's hope he took it. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Let's Cindy, hope so. thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. I hope to see you on the show soon. Thank you so much. Have a great day. And I really appreciate the opportunity. Take care. Ciao. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com.
It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you wanna get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I wanna thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.